Hey there, welcome to this week's show of Beyond the Front Page with the East Aurora Advertiser. I'm Adam. I'm Shelly. Thanks for checking in with us. We have a couple fun things to talk about this week. We have town and village historian Robert Gower coming in to educate us about history in the village. And we will also have former editor Jeremy in to talk about the origin of the Agonizer. We will also be playing some footage from the New York Press Association conference that Adam and I attended in Albany two weeks ago. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Right now, Shelley and I are sitting poolside at the Hilton in Albany. We are at our annual New York Press Association convention. If you hear some cheering in the background, that's actually the Working Families Party. They're meeting here, too. They seem to have a little convention. So they're not just cheering for us, they're cheering for themselves. I apologize for my voice today. Uh, I'm getting over a brief cold, um, but I've not let that get me down too much because the Press Association is a fun event to come to every year. You've rallied. I think I've done my best. Mm-hmm. We have some good news to share, don't good we? Good news, yes we do. It's been a very great, it's been a great convention. It's a time for us to learn, and we also submit entries to be judged by other state press associations. We've taken home a couple awards, including a third place for Shelley in news category for a story on the Marilla Town Hall. Congrats to you. Thank you. So we do want to tell you a little more about NIPA, but first we are going to just chat a little about that story that Shelley worked on. She had a concern, and what was that? The concern was the meetings had gone from about 45 minutes for the first year or more that I had been called Marilla, and they had gone down to approximately 15 minutes. And I just thought, when are they deciding on this policy that they continue to pass on a monthly basis? Often you go to a meeting and you will see them sitting and discussing a topic for a while, but you came to me and said, they're not doing that. They weren't discussing anything. They were just, everybody was voting on policy, either straight across the board, five to to zero, or they would be divided three to two without any deliberation. And this is going back to This was, I, I started to notice it in the fall of 2016, and I foiled, I think I first brought it up to you in January 17, and then I officially foiled in March of 17. And for those out there who aren't sure what FOIL means, that is uh, the Freedom of Information Law in New York State, every person has the right to various information by government officials and agencies, and sometimes they require a formal document saying you want this stuff. It should be open, but sometimes they just require this document, and you submit it, and it's called a FOIL. So I I FOIL for all of their email communication over 30 days, and it took a few weeks to get it all, but I did. I got most of it. And yes, so the thought had been, where are they talking? If they're not talking in in public. public... it's probably, it sounds like email because you are hearing some of the board members say, oh, we're, I'll send you an email, right? That's right. I forgot about that. So sometimes a board member would want to discuss something at the meeting and they would kind of exchange an eye glance with another council member or with the supervisor and then it would just be resolved into, well, I'll just send you an email. So I just wanted to see what those emails were about. So we know the answer, but what tell our listeners, what's the problem with someone just looking at another council member and saying, Instead of discussing it openly, I'll email it to you. What's an issue? Well, the issue is is the public deserves to hear how they reach their conclusions in a public format. We deserve to hear how they deliberate and how they arrive to their conclusions and arrive to their decisions. 
if it's happening in email, it's just going to get buried. How were they coerced, possibly, by other council members to bring them over to a different side? I was pretty specific. It was email uh, communication that happened between all five of the board members. And what did you find? I actually didn't find too much. And that was the thing. Here was a story where we're curious, and we didn't find much. Right. We didn't find much, but what we did find was that it enraged one of the council members. Um, it enraged the supervisor. He was very reluctant to, not so much to hand them over, but he was, he was upset that I was even asking for this information. And again, this is just public information. It's open. It really shouldn't require a FOIL, but sometimes it does. Right. So again, it wasn't so much that we found out they really weren't communicating that much by email. They were doing some of it. Which was unfortunate, though, because if they weren't communicating via email and they weren't really communicating at town board meetings, one might think that perhaps they're not putting very much decision into the policy that they are passing. And again, you know, part of our job is just to go out. We're questioning. We're curious. We have done many times in the past looks like there's a story we go after it and you find out there's really not much but the reason this was a big deal in the end is because while talking to the council members we thought well we'll report on what we found and that right. it's not much in the end it got to be a, a yelling match kind of between the supervisor and you and then he also leveled a derogatory term towards one of the council members on the board and it really showed as Shelley demonstrated in the article he likes control he wants to keep it he just wants some things in a certain way. and I think that we also learned through that he was creating a lot of the policy and he wasn't necessarily being challenged on it. That's part of the reason why the meetings were so short. Everything was just being passed that he wanted to have passed. Mm -hmm. It was a great article. The judges thought so too. Thank um, you. It's a, a very difficult competition in the New York Press Association. We're facing off against newspapers across the entire state. There are, and that includes Long Island, Manhattan, other weeklies. There are not a lot of dailies in our circuit, in our association, but these are papers with 10 reporters maybe. They've got a good staff of people. and So it's, it's always heartening when we come back with a couple of awards. We're also bringing back an award for columnist Rick Oler. He had second place. Congratulations, Rick. He does a great well job. Well deserved. Yes. And he's won several times. He's had first place. Another one I'm happy to announce is our uh, editorial cartoonist John Penfold. He did a great cartoon. We submitted a few and he came in second place in our division, which is another great honor. As we're sitting here poolside, we don't have glasses because that can be dangerous, but we are offering a cheers to both of you with our plastic cups. So good work. So Shelley, how is your convention day going? There's Thank you. 400 other people around the state here for this convention, and it is actually the biggest newspaper convention that happens in the United States on an annual basis. Yeah, very, it's very uplifting for us here. It is. It's always... This overall has been a great convention. The six classes I have sat in on have really motivated me and inspired me to generate better content over the next 12 months. Why? You know, sometimes you need professional development. You need to hear another side. You need to hear it from somebody else. Their experiences, their ideas, and what works for them to figure out how something might work a little bit better for yourself. And with the classes that I've been sitting in on, I think that it's done that. I think that the, the woman that I sat in with two different courses this morning, one was called, what was that first one called? 
Uh, the first class I made to go to as well was called Coaching Writers. It helped editors work better with their staff, so I, I made sure to go, and Shelly was there too, I think, to make sure I followed through on some of those good goals. Likewise, I was wondering what you were writing down about your reporters on that list. <laughs> All my reporters are very professional and wonderful, and I have no complaints. Uh, yeah, they're great. <laughs> The next class that I sat in on was cinematic storytelling, and she was encouraging all the writers in the room to use their notebook like a camera. What does that mean? That means to give your reader a better look at a story using words. So being more descriptive in the writing, using all of the senses, even smell when possible, because sometimes when you're in a certain situation, smell might really bring it home. So she said when her father passed away, she wanted to get one of his, his t-shirts and she held on to it for two years because it smelled like him. He was a woodworker and she could smell the oils from working on the wood on that shirt and he was also a cigarette smoker and she could smell the smoke. And for the next two years, those smells resonated on that shirt and she could carry it with her. So smell does conjure up a lot of memory and if you can incorporate that into your storytelling, it helps the reader. Adam, what workshops have stood out for you this convention? Uh, the one I took in the morning, it was one you were at as well, uh, it dealt with some reporters from the Center for Public Integrity, I believe, and they very much focused on investigative stories and answered questions on how they completed the work. And it's always fascinating to see your colleagues and how they complete the work because we are all trying to do similar things, but people might have a different method, a different process. And I think the one thing I really took from it is I wish, I wish the listener of this podcast and I wish our readers of our paper could actually see these courses too, could see the discussions that happen. Um, we have an editor's roundtable coming up and we've had ethics discussions. And I know a favorite word to be thrown around lately is fake news. And I wish more people could see the amount of work that goes into every news publication, every TV channel, every radio story. You know, we, we have these goals, we have these ethics. I, maybe there's some of you even snickering at that thought. I, I wish you wouldn't, because we, we do really think deeply on a lot of these, and we wonder, is that appropriate? How is this going to affect the readers? And then we also question the coverage, too. We want to make sure we're doing it in a fair and balanced way. And I think if the more people saw how we as reporters and we as editors, journalists in general, in all media fashion, got together and discussed it, maybe we should open our newsroom more to the public and let them come and see us discuss. It takes a lot of time and effort, and sometimes we're working quickly, we want to get a story in, but we're always thinking, how can we make sure this is accurate, this is fair, this is compassionate? I think that's a word I heard a lot this weekend. And I don't think a lot of just the regular readers hear that. As much as possible, we'll share that, because they should know. One thing I think that we generally leave convention with, and sometimes we'll be talking about on the drive home, is what we would like to work on next. And then once we arrive home, we kind of find ourselves balancing again what we need to cover. We need to cover the school board meetings. We need to cover the town board meetings, but also what we want to cover with some of the bigger investigative stories, with some of the feature stories. Has there been anything in the past few days that you've thought about that you would like to see covered or cover yourself? Definitely the investigative side of things. Every time I come back from this, I think, how can we 
get more involved in the community? How can we cover more subjects with what we have, the resources we have? Um, we are a, a very small newspaper, but I feel we've done a great job for the community. You know, my own personal belief. We've got a great fan base, too. Yeah, we're not doing this for ourselves. <laughs> we are doing it for the people out there. It's, there's no joke to that. It's, if they weren't reading, we wouldn't have a paper and we wouldn't do this work. Mm -hmm. So we are doing that for them. And you know, We want people to come to the office. They can ride their bikes up, park at the bike rack that we have, walk up. It's a walkable community. But we want to get out there as well. I think that's every year, I think, how else can we do it? Anything else? Not at this time. All right. It's been a good weekend, Shelley. It's been a great. Here's to more stories. Here's to more stories. Clink. <laughs> <laughs> when we come back, Rob Gower will be here to talk about three guys in a boat. It was a fun tale. So stick around. I'm excited to bring back town and village historian Robert Gower to the, the building today. How are you, Rob? Excellent. How are you? I'm doing very well. We've got a recent column you did, Three Men in a Boat. Yes. Was, uh, <laughs> this is a photo I've seen. I know the adver so the advertiser has that feature passed and picked, and I think I've used it once before, but I used it from a previous edition that had used that image as a past in picture explaining yes. what happened. Explain this image, Three Men in a Boat. Well, this image, it's interesting because I, sometimes I like will go through old newspapers, something will pop out, or I'll be looking through photos and something will pop out, and I'm like, oh, that'd be a great article. So I'll set it aside. I actually have a system where I you know, do that. This is what happened with this. So this photo, it's three men, not in a tub, but three men in a boat, Every time there's a flood in East Aurora, we have spring thaw and all this. Joe Stapleton Potts posts on Facebook, uh, and a lot of his pictures are from the historian's office collection, the archives. This one just seemed to pop up all the time. So every time we have a flood, it'll either someone will post it on Facebook or I'll dig it out and put it up. So others have seen it. Others have seen yeah. it. The three guys are smiling. And they even had the name, Richard Little, John Schindler, and Eugene Yergi. That was in the East Shore Advertiser? Both. They had, the uh, the advertiser had talked about these silly gentlemen going out, and they mentioned their names. And we'll have this photo with this podcast on our website, and it's also with Rob's calm, and you can see it there. If we're t describing it for our listeners, we've got the three guys. And it's a weird-looking boat. Actually, according to the one account, it was a motor boat, but it looks more <laughs> like a can to me. I don't know. It just looks odd. I don't, yeah. I'm not an expert on these sorts of things, but... It what? does not look something like something that should be floating. <laughs> no, no. But it, it's doing a good job. I'm wondering which, when you're looking at the photo, the three men are looking at us. Where are they? Do you know? Yeah. So this is actually between, the flood happened between Hamlin and Willow. So what ends up happening is when that creek backed up, for whatever, I, I'm sure it was further up, but they said 500 feet in opposite directions of, of the creek. Now, of course, beyond Willow wasn't a whole lot of, the houses are set back a little further. Back then, there were even more houses there, so they weren't as close to the road. This section, which today would be where the bowling alley 11th frame is, that's right in this area. Uh, the barber shop, CJ's 189, that's what we're looking at here is Main Street right here. The background, though, is Willow and Ham Hamlin are in that general area. So you would say these... The gentleman and the boat are coming towards the, the circle. Heading towards the circle. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's a crisp, clear photo, which for 1936 is very awesome. Like you can really zoom in and see the W. J. Fox. Yes. Is that what was that? That was a uh, basically a uh, 
I don't know what you'd call it, a deli, but it was actually an ice cream place. You, it was noted for its ice cream. They actually had ice cream in the name of it. Um, and I actually, to find out where this was, because frankly, I didn't, when I first saw this photo, I didn't know it was the West End down by the circle. You can't really tell because none of these buildings are really there anymore. But I looked up, I saw the name. And again, this goes back to when you see an old photo, you have to look at some clues to figure out. And so I did that, went back to our phone directories from the time period, or what they call village directories, because not everyone had a phone, and, and pinpointed where it was. And then, of course, you match up with the articles and talking about the West End flood and all that sort of thing. So they sold Coca-Cola at the time. <laughs> they had a Fro-Joy ice cream, finer flavor maybe? The, yes, that's what it says, yeah. They have a big sign that's saying Fountain Services, the Buffalo New Buffalo Evening News was sold there. Do you know what the gas station was in the background? Beyond that, we believe that was there was a gas station actually where Dunkin' Donuts is, where Box was, you know, for years and years, and I think that's the general area. Now, mind you, the buildings in the background, are most of them aren't with us anymore. They either burned down or were taken down. And so the first thing you ask when you see this picture is, what the heck is going on? So you have three guys in a boat and a bunch of people on the side of Main Street looking at, at these guys. I was like, you know, on the back of it, it said 1936, and that's all it said. And I was like, you know what, this, there's more to this story. Basically, <laughs> sure, that three, way. Guys. three guys in a, in, a, in, a, in a boat. So what I did is I, I looked in the advertiser and noticed that 1936, there was this big flood down at the West End. And I said, that has to be the same one. Well, in the article, they referenced these three gentlemen. Actually, this photo was published in a Buffalo newspaper. Not an Easter advertiser. Which Buffalo newspaper? I'm not sure. I only have the clip of it, and it's not the advertiser, and they're referencing other Buffalo things in this little clip. So I wanted to get figure out what this story was. Well, then, coincidentally, in early March of 2018, this year, we had a big snowstorm with eight, more than 18 inches of snow. And they had mentioned that, I think the Buffalo News had an article in there about heavy late uh, season snowstorms, and they went through all the records. St. Patrick's Day of 1936 is still, I guess, the record holder for the snowiest March day in Buffalo. And they had Easter Aurora on St. Patrick's Day of 1936 had more than 18 inches of snow. You've got a photo for, that says 1936, an, an advertiser article from that, and then the Buffalo News. Did your mind just start going, Absolutely. Yes. And I started connecting the dots in my head, and I said, I had already decided to do this article. I've been holding it for a while. I was like, <laughs> did I save it for March? And then all of a sudden that comes out. I'm like, 1936, again. So I looked in the advertiser again, which is I tend to do, and we, over 18 inches of heavy, wet snow. Sounds familiar, right? falling uh, within a 24-hour period. That was that was the key to the record. It was the amount of snow within a 24-hour period uh, in March. So a single day. So that's what happened in 1936. There's this big snowstorm over 18 inches of snow, and it stayed cold for a week. So all this snow, and there are pictures, and actually one was with the article, of the snow piles above the cars. Like, it was pretty intense. A week later, a week and a day later, we get an afternoon of hot sun. Within four hours, all this snow starts melting, which creates a problem for our little Tannery Brook. Tannery Brook is coming back in. It has always been a problem. Today, there's a culvert under Main Street for Tannery Brook. Well, back in 1930s, there was a culvert, and it wasn't big enough. What ended up happening is that it thawed so quickly. And of course, in the spring, you've got all this junk, tree limbs, everything else floating along with it, and it created within a very short period of time, uh, a flood, and they really weren't prepared for it. So that's what led to this picture uh, in the afternoon of that day. 
And it's very interesting to be able to pinpoint pretty much an exact time of when this happened. It was within a four-hour period. Mid-afternoon, about 3 o'clock, the water starts rising very quickly. And so a lot of people started gathering. And then these gentlemen decided to make, make a little, have a little fun with it and go out. And they're, they've got this oar and they're paddling down Main Street. And mind you, this doesn't happen every day. So this was a perfect uh, time to do that. And of course, a photographer was there. I do, it looks posed, so I'm pretty sure that they planned all this. What's great is there's some, you know, young ladies in the background looking and gentlemen too. There's, you know, groups of them looking and uh, most of them look like they're school-aged maybe or some of the business owners came out to see this quote-unquote spectacle on Main Street. But behind this, though, is a very serious problem of the basements were flooding. Account of this event, I mean, remember, this was a time period of the 30s. People still had horses, people still had carriages, and the barns were flooding. And actually, in some places, it was 12 feet high, they said. So they had to get these animals out pretty quickly. No one was hurt. And they were also worried about Casanova Creek because all that water was rushing down to Casanova Creek, and then that almost was going to flood. Um, because Tannery Brook empties into Casanova near the cemetery. So there was all these worries. And actually, um, within a couple hours, they said by 7 p.m., the water had receded, it had cooled down, the temperatures had cooled down, the water receded, and they were able to put traffic back on Main Street. For a couple weeks after, they were sanitizing. There was a huge concern about sanitation, because not pleasant to talk about, but the sewers overflowed and the sewage overflowed. So a lot of basements in that area were, they needed to sanitize against that. Who knows what's in that water? Not to be gross, but there was a serious health concern. That flood, that four hours, really caused some problems for a couple weeks. And there was really a lot of follow-up. Village engineers and things talked about that. So it goes beyond the picture, I think. And not to get too sentimental about it, but you know, some, some historians are you know uh, care about buildings and uh, structures and things like that. Those are important, but I like people. And I like to like try to think about what people were thinking, what they were doing, and the challenges they went through. So I'm, I like call myself a people historian. So that's why I like this picture, because the, there are buildings in the background, but I want to know there's the people's story, like intrigued by what's that young man in the background? What, why was he there? Is he in school? Is he not in school? You know, was this, it was late afternoon, so the girls in the background might have been coming home from school. Who knows? And, and that's what I, I have always enjoyed about the columns when reading them, is that personal aspect of the people. And I think for me, when I read this one, and I was going through it, and just seeing that there were th- the names were there. I don't know why. It was something about seeing the three names for these gentlemen. Well, what it does, and what people need to do right now, your pictures on your cell phones, print at least one out. Pick a good one of, of different events. So if you go to a birthday party and you take 400 pictures, pick one, print it out, and write the people's names on the back. This picture means a lot more because we have the date and the people's names on the back of it. Or there's a caption accompanying it that we're able to prove. We have hundreds of photographs in the collection that are not identified. They might mean something, but they're not. Imagine if we could go back with those names, go back in the obituary files, go back in the family files, and put a story behind the people that are in those photographs. I haven't done it yet, but those three folks, those three gentlemen, I can go back and see, well, you know, what did they do for a living? What brought them to this Main Street section? You know, what was their life like afterwards? What did they go on to do? It just puts a story to it. And we would, if we did not have that captured identifying those people, we would have none of that. Right. So today we need to be more careful more than ever because nobody's printing photos out anymore. And we have all these photos stuck in our phones, stuck in our cameras, stuck in 
the cloud, I don't think people are going to be perusing the cloud in a hundred years. I think a physical, you know, we they peruse through physical things and editing. They took one or two photos of this event, and we have this photo today. Like we talked about earlier, you could have someone just clicking and clicking and clicking. We'd have hundreds of photos of this. It's not the same, you know. We'd have hundreds of photos, but edit down to the best one and save that one or two that best represent the event. Because in a hundred years, someone sees a stack of a hundred photographs, they're not going to go through them all. No, you know, we need to edit, um, and that's I think a, a, a perfect example of what this this uh, this picture shows. Yeah, 80 years ago is when, the, 82 years ago this event happened, and we're able to now, because of the information you found, we can discuss it and, you know, share that with people and, and kind of think, well, as you said, it's fun, it was a fun photo, but then there's a serious aspect of it, and it ties us with our past, with our bicentennial this year. Absolutely. It's something we're trying to focus on, and great advice, saving, saving photos, saving that information so people in the future will remember. Yeah, very cool. Thanks for that column, and thanks Absolutely. for stopping by, Rob. Always a pleasure. Thank you. We'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. We're going to take a brief break, and when we come back, I'll share the story of how a submarine came to rest in Casanova Creek outside the East Aurora American Legion. Don't go far. East Aurora Advertiser, Elmer Review Editor, Jeremy Morlock here with me. He now works with the Kidney Foundation of Western New York. Jeremy took some time to stop in at the office. How are you doing, Jeremy? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me here, Adam. Oh, it's a pleasure. Uh, it's good to see you again. Nope, this year's East Aurora Agonizer. It's the annual April Fool's page on the back of our paper. It's been, This is its 11th year it's been around, and its origin begins with you. That is true. Uh, it's kind of funny but I, I would say that the uh, the agonizer is one of the things I'm proudest of. Um, it's kind of a mixed legacy, I, I guess, but uh, but I always did enjoy working on the agonizer. I was always happy with the finished product, and I'm glad to see it's uh, continued past my tenure here. So everyone that continues to either laugh or get frustrated by it can look to you for this, because each editor after you, I think, has felt a special kinship to that page. I, I like, or gets frustrated at it, so, <laughs> so you're laying the blame on, on me here. So, no, no, no. If you're upset with this this year's agonizer, blame Jeremy Morlock. Like that. <laughs> so, Jeremy, where did the name Eastora Agonizer come from? So, that's actually been a nickname for the paper, for the advertiser, for years, and it was something that I'd hear occasionally in meetings, especially from citizens who'd lived here for a while. They'd be like, oh, how are things over at the Agonizer? And I, I was amused by it. And when it came time to do our April Fool's edition, there was no other name. <laughs> uh, it had to be the Agonizer. And I'm glad to see that that continues to be used as Absolutely, well. Absolutely. It's perfect. Uh, freelance reporter Pat McDonald, when he signs, uh, signs his emails or whatever, he's always uh, Pat from the Agonizer. Very nice. <laughs> uh, so it, it continues in a variety of ways. Yeah, yeah. It started out in 2008. I, I'd actually been, I started with the Advertiser and Elmer Review as editor in the fall of 2006. So I've always been a fan of satire, especially news satire. I was, uh, 
an avid reader in college of The Onion. My college newspaper did a, an April Fool's edition. And so I always kind of had that in the back of my head. And the first uh, year or so that I was at the Advertiser, I, I wouldn't have thought to sully its pages with, uh, with something like The Agonizer. <laughs> but the longer that you're in local news, the more little ideas you have, little uh, quirks get called to your attention about the way local politics work, local government, businesses, that sort of thing. And so the Agonizer actually started out just as a, a Word document on uh, in one of my folders on my computer where I'd write down little things almost solely for my own amusement. <laughs> <laughs> the one year we were, we were coming up, I, I believe it was probably February or maybe even March, and I just uh, I pitched the idea to publisher Grant Hamilton, and he was very supportive. He he said, "Yeah, go for it." So, so that was how history uh, history began. <laughs> how did you approach the first issue? I never wanted to be mean spirited with the agonizer. The idea was always to take something that was actually going on in the community or an idea that was out there and kind of run with it to its most ridiculous extreme. So I, I always thought that that was where the, the best humor came from, the, the funniest things that we'd see. And I, I know you mentioned earlier the, the submarine. Can yeah. you tell us about the submarine? So the first issue came out in 2008, mm -hmm. and it was actually on, it wasn't on the back page as we have it now, correct? Yeah, it was on the in, inside front-facing page, so page three. Right. So people would have turned and seen a second have a big banner that says Easter or Agonizer, and it's brand new. You didn't announce it to anyone? No, I thought that the surprise would be a big part of the success or, or uh, you know, there was the potential for failure, but I, I thought that surprising people with it would be important. <laughs> and the lead photo is a submarine coming out of the water in Casanova Creek outside the East Aurora American Legion with the, the headline, American Legion adds submarine to display. Where did the idea come from? So in the, the years leading up to this, the American Legion park there, uh, the one off of Century Street, had added several times to its uh, collection of, uh, of displays. It was one of those things where I thought, well, what else, what else are they going to add next? And it was the, the germ of the idea was Hmm, maybe they could add, they're, they're right there next to the creek, maybe they could add a ship. And then we realized that a, a submarine would be, uh, would be funnier. And I, I did say before that the agonizer started with me, but I, I'd say since the very beginning, it's always been a collaborative process. I uh, bounced ideas off of people. We had a, a couple guest writers. Marty Wanglin, our photographer, took the picture that the uh, submarine photo is, is based on and it, uh, it took a long time in Photoshop to get it to just where I wanted it to be because part of the joke with the, the submarine was that, you know, it's right there in the water right next to the, uh, the Legion Park. It's a great image. It looks as though you did a great job. Oh, thank you. I really think, just looking at it, did you hear anything on this particular photo about people, what the reactions were? This had one of my favorite reactions of any agonizer uh, photo or, or story, which was uh, Marty Wanglin, the photographer, whose, whose name is credited below the, the photo here that's been doctored to include the submarine, was 
at, I, I don't remember if it was an American Legion event or a Moose Club event, but he was speaking with one of the, the veterans and the, the gentleman said, oh, I, I, haven't, I haven't seen that submarine. And Marty's response was, yeah, I had to wait an hour for the darn thing to surface. <laughs> So, yeah, my my favorite thing is is when someone takes an agonizer story and believes it's real for for a little while. And I think you're right. The spirit has continued. Where maybe it's a an opinion editorial sometimes, and maybe we're critiquing something, but mm-hmm. we're trying to be lighthearted. Uh, Rick Oler, who was with us earlier, he mentioned it's kind of like a mirror on the community, a lighthearted take. Oh, very much so. And that's we often tried to. If we were using quotes in the in the stories, we'd be either using something that a local elected official or business person had actually said, or something very similar to kind of uh, tie it in more with uh, with realism. Uh, can you read a couple, maybe some of the inside this edition, some of the things that were there at the time or headlines? So inside this edition for the two thousand eight. Agonizer includes uh, Murdoch bids for advertiser, uh, oil discovered off of Sinking Pond Shore, deed problem, Hamlin Air's own park, Daily Horoscope, page question mark, question mark, Little Loop Football plans Elm Street Dome, uh, Latin making a comeback, page XIV. <laughs> That's a nice touch, the XIV. I hadn't noticed that till now. We, we tried to... I, I often think the, the funniest jokes are the ones that are hidden in the details. Last year I had page R2D2. And, I do recall that. And this year I changed one of them, that one, to C3PO, which a little of the nerd aspect was coming out. Surprising. Uh, <laughs> How was the reaction? I'd say generally we got positive feedback on this, which is one of the reasons that it, it continued. It was mostly gentle fun that we were poking at the uh, Aurora and the, the surrounding communities at this point. Uh, we've got an Albert Lives graffiti as, as if Roy Crofters were a gang uh, tagging buildings here in town. Um, we, uh, we included a joke about the East Aurora not at center of universe, which <laughs> I had heard heard from several people that that was a, uh, a fan fa- favorite for the uh, first year there. I'm a lifelong East Auroran, so I, I think I can say that all, all the fun that we poked at it, we, we, uh, it's, it's fun we had in love sure. uh, with, with the village. But it is important to have some self-awareness that we are very quaint. We are sometimes extraordinarily lucky to live in the place that we are. Sometimes it's, it's good to, uh, to take aim at that. The next year you have a high-speed train service comes to West Falls with a bullet train outside the West Falls Hotel. Uh, well, you can never forget West Falls. West Falls is a beloved hamlet. This is and true. And I don't know how much attention we paid to them in the first agonizer, and we wanted to make sure to give West Falls its due. What are, what are some other ones you remember over the years? You worked on, so you started in 2008, and you worked up until, I believe, the 2014 edition. Yeah. So you handled six of those, if I'm doing my math correctly. Fan favorites for you. Oh, for me. Wow. It's hard to, to pick. I, I kind of I kind of love them all. <laughs> <laughs> they still stand up. I'm really and I'm not just saying that, like I go back and read them and I'm still laughing. Well, they tend to be funnier the more you know about the the background and, and what was going on in the community at that time. And so sometimes if 
uh, earlier today, Adam and I were looking through some of the, the pages of the, the past editions, and I was remembering things about what was going on in the town at the time and what the crises were and what the criticism was that, that was getting out there. Um, one of my favorite pieces was we just added stop signs to <laughs> every single driveway on Oakwood Avenue. I frequently drive down Oakwood Avenue, and it can be a little frustrating to have to stop as frequently as one does. And the village had recently added a new stop sign, I believe, on Center Street near Prospect. And uh, yeah, that was a that that was one that I, again heard a lot of positive feedback on that. We've had others who have kind of played along. I remember we poked fun at the Elma Town board once, mm-hmm. and. And we said something, I can't even remember what the story was, but we poked fun at them. And the next meeting I go to, the supervisor's up there and he closes the meeting by saying, I have really sad news. Um, I just got word that the East Shore Advertiser and the Alma Review have folded. They ran out of funds and they will no longer be printing. And I knew what he was doing right away. So I'm smiling and other people in the audience are like, <gasps> and he looked at me and he just goes, April Fools. And, <laughs> and so that's kind of what we're hoping for. Mm-hmm. Another favorite response that I've had was we, um, during the time of the, the Main Street reconstruction, uh, they did all the, the brickwork on Main Street here in the, the business district, kind of uh, by the, the advertiser. And we ran uh, a photo saying DOT blacktops over Main Street bricks, <laughs> saying that contractors had put blacktop over the bricks on Main Street after laying them down. And apparently, someone snipped out that pa- that photo and caption and sent it without any sort of context or comment to DOT folks in Albany who were aghast. And, <laughs> um, apparently it was quite a, quite a favorite with, uh, with some of the, the local people who were more in the know. But yeah, it did, it did lead to some phone calls. <laughs> so getting, getting personal... How does it feel <laughs> that, that, your, <laughs> that your April Fool's edition has continued for 11 years and it really is an expected part of the community? I, it's a legacy. The April Fool's wow. edition is a legacy. How does it make you feel? I, I'm really happy about that. I, as, a, as a reader now, now that I'm not involved in the production of, of the paper at all, I do always look forward to receiving that that April edition and seeing the the agonizer and seeing the the clever things that you've come up with and that, that the other folks here have, have come up with um, I, I'd say I'm, I'm very proud of my years at the advertiser generally that's I, I was here for about seven years and there were some stories that we worked really hard on there were some challenging times there were some controversies that we worked through and, and you and I worked through some of those together and so there are a lot of proud moments but I'd say that this does rank up there with them I'm very proud that the uh, that the agonizer continues to this day and, and that it is something that people look forward to I really appreciate you stopping in today it's been a pleasure you know I, I we, it is an honor in a way to continue that tradition so thank you so much <laughs> it's been a pleasure to be here Well, I think that's it for us this week. Uh, Thank you for listening. Don't forget, if you have any suggestions about your paper, we would love to hear from you and love to know what you're thinking about. Call 716-324-1816. 
The phone call goes right to voicemail. To leave some comments and suggestions you have on story ideas, um, how we're doing on this podcast, what you're seeing when you're walking around the village, anything. The number's there. We'll take a listen whenever you call. In the meantime, do good. Be well. Bye.